Hello, I'm Luke Turner. Welcome to Why, the podcast that explores those huge questions that live in the backs of our minds. The universe is unknown, unpredictable, endless, and if both science and Hollywood have taught us anything, it is hugely dangerous. Solar storms and flares have the ability to knock out an entire continent's power grid, and black holes have a gravitational pull beyond our wildest imagination, a force so strong that even light cannot escape their infernal drag. Astronomers are continually unravelling the secrets of space. It's deeply fascinating, and if I think about it too much, a bit terrifying. We might think we understand the power of the sun or the Earth's gravitational pull as it sustains life on our planet, but out there in the vastness of the universe, there are forces at work that make these look like brief mouse farts. About 600 million light years away, something else swirls, something that can shine as brightly as a trillion stars, but is tightly packed into a volume the size of our solar system. What is it? Today on Why, we're asking, what is the most powerful thing in the universe? If you have a really powerful pencil bead jet, it could just pierce through the galaxy and only really destroy or affect this very narrow path that the beam took. Dr Vicky Fawcett is Research Associate in Astrophysics at Newcastle University. There's a lot of work going into how these jets launched by the black hole would affect the surrounding galaxy. Perhaps it would shut down star formation. Some studies say it might increase the number of stars. Vicky, what would you say is the most powerful thing in the universe? So I'd say that a quasar is definitely the most powerful thing in the universe. And the most powerful quasars we know of are about a thousand times more powerful than the Milky Way galaxy itself. Incredible. So can you describe what a quasar looks like based on these images that we've seen back from the Hubble telescope? Yeah, so we've got a pretty good idea of what a quasar is from yeah, the nearby local quasars that we have Hubble's images of and also spectroscopic data and photometry of more distant quasars. We now know that a quasar, much like any galaxy, has a central supermassive black hole. And surrounding this supermassive black hole is what we call an accretion disk. So this is a disk of matter that is slowly falling into the supermassive black hole. Most galaxies where the amount of material that's falling into the central supermassive black hole is very slow and makes the black hole not very active, quasars eat and consume a lot of material. And this makes the central engine incredibly powerful. And in which case, sometimes we get these very energetic relativistic jets that are launched from the black hole. And also other sorts of outflows could also be launched from the central engine. So you say they're local, these black holes. How do we define local in this sense? So most of the quasars, the kind of peak epoch of quasar activities around a redshift of two to three. So about two to three billion years after the Big Bang. But like you said in your introduction, we can study some of the ones that are close by. So the closest to us is Markarian 231, which is about 600 million light years away. Although technically this is a slightly lower luminosity. So this would actually be a safer galaxy and not actually a quasar. 
but there are some fairly local ones. But the majority of the quasar activity is in the distant universe, which is the, the ones that I like to study myself. If we're sort of trying to visualise it again, I've seen some, some images where they sort of look like a, a donut with a laser beam blasting out of it. A ring donut, not a jam donut. A ring donut with a laser beam blasting out of it. That's my sort of layman's way of describing it. How would you sort of describe it and what are these different parts? Yes, yeah, so beyond this accretion disk of matter that's falling into the supermassive black hole, we have what we call the dusty torus, which is this dusty donut kind of structure around the accretion disk. There's ongoing debate of exactly what this donut is like. Depending on our viewing angle, it sometimes blocks out completely all the light from the accretion disk, which is where the majority of the quasar light comes from. So if our line of sight is directly through this donut, which completely obscures the central engine of the quasar, we call this a type 2 quasar. Whereas the ones that I look at, which is where you can see all the light from the accretion disk, which is what makes them incredibly bright, we call these type 1 quasars. And this jet, this kind of laser beam that comes out of the supermassive black hole, which is what a lot of the artist impressions show, this is this highly relativistic jet that we're not exactly sure how it's launched. A lot of work's been going on into how you can launch a jet from a supermassive black hole, but we know that they exist because we can observe them, in particular in the X-rays, but also the radio. So there's a lot of work into radio jets launched from quasars. That's incredible. And that funny, interesting, you talk about the engine, this engine at the heart of these quasars. Is it possible to sort of put a, a number on the power that these things are exerting? Or is that beyond our, our science at the moment? Yes, yeah, so we can work out how much, we call it the mass accretion rate, so how much of the mass of this accretion disk is falling into the black hole. And then that also, we know also the luminosity of the of the quasar and the mass of the supermassive black hole, so we can get a handle on how powerful these objects are. And like I said a bit earlier, some of the most powerful ones, or the brightness of the most powerful quasars, we know are a thousand times that of the Milky Way. And so what is the black hole pulling in? What is this disk of matter that's kind of being sucked into it? Is it physical matter as we would understand it? Yes, yeah, so because of gravity, so you, you know, the planets go around the sun because the sun has gravity. Because a supermassive black hole has an immense amount of gravity, a lot of uh, kind of gas and dust, kind of particles as we know it, orbit around the black hole, get attracted to the black hole. And then eventually when they get beyond the kind of point of no return, they fall into the black hole. But for a very long time, a lot of things can just be in what we call a stable orbit around the black hole in this disk. But eventually from conservation of angular momentum, the material will fall into the black hole. Does that then become the jet, or do we just not know that because we don't really know what's inside a black hole? We don't really know. There's been some models of kind of where this, for example, an X-ray corona, as we call it, we know that the supermassive black hole or near the supermassive black hole, there's some source of X-rays. We think this could be linked to the jet, but we're not exactly sure the geometry of that. And we know the jet, what properties it links to. For example, the spin of the black hole we know is very important. And the spinning black hole in combination with magnetic fields will then collimate particles in this kind of jet-like structure. 
but exactly where this jet is launched, how close to the black hole the jet is launched, that's still ongoing research. And how big is a quasar? Are they different sizes? So it depends on how massive the uh, central black hole is. That determines how big the accretion disk is. So for quasars, the central black hole can be about a million to a billion times the mass of our sun. So the kind of largest quasars we know, the largest supermassive black holes that are in these quasars are about a billion times the mass of our sun. Wow. Okay. This is this is all kind of mind blowing, mind blowing stuff to sort of imagine all this happening out into space. How did we discover them? What's the history of that? So the history is actually linked to the name quasar. Why are they called quasars? So quasar stands for quasi stellar radio source, and that's because back in the 1960s when they were first discovered. They were discovered as this very bright radio source on the sky that looked star-like. It was very point-like. It looked a bit like a star, but it was very bright in the radio. So no one really knew what it was. They thought maybe it was this weird radio bright star. So they called it quasi-stellar, so star-like radio source. And it was only kind of in the next few decades that we actually realised they weren't stars, they were actually galaxies, but the central point, the central quasar, was so bright, it outshined all the stars in the galaxy, which is why they appear very point-like on the, kind of star-like on the sky, just because that central region's so bright. That's kind of all that you can see. And we also know that from the development of other telescopes and kind of multi-wavelength astronomy, we know, yes, some of them can be bright in the radio, but they're actually bright across the electromagnetic spectrum. And it's actually only 10% of quasars that we call radio loud, which means that they're very bright in the radio. But we now know that kind of 90%, the majority of quasars can actually be very quiet, as we say, in the radio. Can I go out on a clear night with my binoculars and see a quasar, is that possible? So I don't do kind of local astronomy, but I'm I'm sure that if you have a telescope, an amateur telescope, I was talking to some people at Sunderland Astronomical Society and kind of using some amateur telescopes, they did actually take a picture and identify where in their photo was a, a quasar located. So it can be done just from some amateur telescopes, some very bright close by quasars. But it's probably partly due to science fiction and things, but I keep getting drawn back to this sort of beam blasting out. What would happen if you got in the way of that beam that's coming out of the of a quasar? Oh, I think that would be it would be pretty devastating. So because the jet, if it does get launched, not all quasars have these really powerful jets. But they're so powerful that the speed at which the jet's going is kind of relativistic, so almost close to the speed of light. It's like a pencil beam. So we actually, a lot of people study jets in terms of how do they affect the galaxy. So for example, if a galaxy has some quasar in the middle and it has these really kind of powerful radio jets, how is this going to affect how the galaxy evolves? And there's been a lot of debates how much it would actually affect because if you have a really powerful pencil beam jet, it could just pierce through the galaxy and only really destroy or affect this very narrow path that the beam took. There's actually a lot more work going into more low-powered jets that we think because they're slower, 
they have more time to kind of slam into the surrounding dust and gas in the galaxy and disrupt it more than these really super powerful jets. There's a lot of work, it's called feedback, a lot of work going into how these jets launched by the black hole would affect the surrounding galaxy. Perhaps it would shut down star formation. Some studies say it might increase the number of stars. There's it's another quite open-ended topic that's being discussed. We've heard that quasars are formed when a supermassive black hole undergoes a radical transformation, absorbing and then blasting out energy in a powerful pencil beam. I wonder where quasars sit in the timeline of a galaxy's life. Was our own Milky Way once a quasar? That's another good question that's being debated. There's a lot of work going into, we call it the kind of evolutionary scenario, where it's it's a well-known fact now that if two galaxies merge together, so two galaxies crash together, their central supermassive black holes will merge. There'll be a lot of dust and gas and it'll be very kind of chaotic for a while. And all that dust and gas will be funneled into the centre and ignite this supermassive black hole and ignite a quasar. But then eventually, through kind of jets and or winds from the supermassive black hole that blow away this dust and gas, we think eventually the quasar will eat up the surrounding material and there won't be enough material falling into the supermassive black hole to keep the quasar active. So one day it might just turn off, as we say, become a dormant normal galaxy. So there is some evidence that this can occur, whether... It's this A to B to C kind of evolutionary scenario, whether a quasar phase is episodic, so maybe something happens to the galaxy, turns the quasar on for a bit, and then eventually it turns off and it keeps going through the cycle. We're not too sure. But the Milky Way, for example, there's evidence that it used to be in a more kind of active phase. So not a quasar, just because it's not massive enough to be a quasar, it wouldn't be bright enough. But we think it definitely would be some kind of low luminosity active galaxy in the past. For example, the, f- the quite famous Fermi bubbles, which are these gamma ray kind of relic emission that you see above and below the Milky Way, a bit like it kind of looks like an old jet. So we think maybe this is leftover gamma ray emission from when the Milky Way used to be active. And then looking towards the future, the Milky Way is eventually going to merge with Andromeda, our closest spiral galaxy. We know they're both kind of coming towards each other. So in about three to four billion years, they'll both collide and then likely then they'll form a quasar after they've merged together. So that might be dangerous to us, but we're probably not going to be around, let's face it, to have to worry about it. Well, so someone actually did some pretty cool simulations of what the sky would look like if we were still on Earth looking up as Andromeda was coming towards us. And for a while, it'll look pretty spectacular. You'll look in the sky and there'll be a a very clear spiral galaxy. But then when we actually merge together, it's unclear whether that would destroy the Earth just because there's so much space in between. Like Galaxies are mainly made up of space. So most likely all the stars and planets will just kind of fly through each other, won't actually collide. 
potentially because of the gravitational disruption, the solar system might be flung off or torn apart, which would be problematic. But in terms of <laughs> things actually colliding with the Earth, it probably would be quite unlucky if that happened. But yes, it's it's a few billion years, so you know we we might might not be around to see that. So your study of quasars at the moment, I've been reading you, your interest in the difference between red and blue quasars. Could you explain that, that a little bit to us? Yes, we've been talking about this accretion disk that's surrounding the black hole and kind of falling into it. So this accretion disk is very bright because of all this material that's all between the black hole at great speeds. The material rubs together, the friction causes heat, and the heat causes light. And this light is very bright in optical and ultraviolet. So when we look at quasars and we see the light from the secretion disk, they appear very blue in the optical. And this is actually how most of the surveys that aim to find quasars, they target very bright blue objects because it's point-like and it's very bright and it's blue, it's probably going to be a quasar. So this is the majority of quasars, but then astronomers have found this small subset of quasars that aren't blue. They actually show uh, much redder colours. So on the face of things, why is this interesting? A small fraction happened to be red. Well, throughout the work that I've done and some colleagues of mine have also been looking into, we find that these red quasars show very special properties. The original understanding of red quasars was they're red because there's a bit of dust and this dust just could come from this dusty donut and in which case red and blue quasars are exactly the same object just viewed in slightly different ways but our research suggests that red quasars are fundamentally different to blue quasars and they're actually a prime candidate in we've been talking about this evolutionary sequence where you go from kind of merging galaxies then there's a lot of dust and gas, then you eventually get quasar. So we think red quasars are the precursor to blue quasars. So when the quasars ignited, but there's still a lot of dust and gas left over from this interaction, and that's what makes them red. And the reason we think that is we've done a lot of studies looking at the radio properties of red and blue quasars. We find that red quasars are enhanced in the radio. And this can't really be explained by just the fact that they're slightly red or they're seen in a slightly different orientation. So we know there's something special going on with red quasars and they might be the key to our understanding of how quasars and even galaxies evolve over time. Obviously, it takes a long time for the light and radio waves to reach us, so these things would have happened a very long time ago. But have you been able to observe the, the process of a quasar forming yourself? So unfortunately, not. All of these phases take a very long time. So there were some simulations looking into this red quasar phase and how long it would last. And it's a relatively quick phase, but it lasts a million years. Oh, right. So... <laughs> That's And that's quite a short phase in terms of the lifetime of a quasar. So what we do in astronomy these days, we're, we've got the benefit of big data, and that's kind of the buzzword that a lot of the universities use these days, is that instead of having to look at one quasar for a million to a billion years, we look at two million quasars. And then each of those quasars are slightly different. Some of them are redder, some of them are bluer, some of them have different radio properties. And we do statistical studies, essentially, to then 
look at the differences between the two populations. And how do you make those observations? How do you receive the, the information and the data? Is it radio telescopes, visual telescopes, optical? What Can you explain a little about the variety of sources you use? So the great thing about quasars, as I mentioned earlier, is they're bright in all wavelengths. So back in the day, as astronomy used to be, you were a radio astronomer and that was you for your entire life. You were a radio astronomer and somebody else would be an optical astronomer. But these days people have realised the benefit of multi-wavelength astronomy. So people do observations at all different wavelengths and each different wavelength tells you something different about the physical properties of the quasar. And they also, different wavelengths, you can select different types of quasars as well. For example, like I said, the obscured quasars, the ones that have this dusty donut that we're we're looking through so we can't see any of the light of the accretion disk, if you looked at these in optical, you wouldn't see anything because well, the optical light is completely blocked out. But these can actually be found in infrared because this dusty donut is very bright in infrared and also x-rays as well because x-rays can see through this dust. So personally, the data that I use, I use optical, what's called spectroscopy. So that's looking at optical light, but uh, split up into different wavelengths and then you can plot the spectra and that tells you about the dust properties, the accretion properties, how large the black hole is of the object. You can get a lot of information from spectra. Even though people are used to looking at nice images of space, spectra is actually much more powerful than images. And then I also use the radio so I kind of match the two together so I have information about the dust and I have information about the radio for each quasar and then I can kind of explore those properties together. What would you say is the biggest question you personally have about quasars? Oh that's a good one. Personally I, I'd i really love to know in more detail about this evolutionary sequence because there's a lot I've kind of given the simplistic idea but there's there's been a lot of questions about this evolutionary scenario. For example, we know two merging galaxies produces a quasar, but we now, there's been a lot of work that's shown that not all quasars came from merging galaxies. There's, there's other processes that produce them. So that kind of makes us think, is there some other sequence that produces a quasar? Is there, is it this episodic thing? Is it not necessarily this really simple evolutionary scenario does every galaxy go through a quasar phase so there's some of the questions and then also the the really big question in the active galaxy community is how do these winds and these jets launched by the black hole affect how this galaxy evolves so does the galaxy evolve slightly differently does it have different types or numbers of stars depending on whether it had a really powerful center and very powerful jets hitting all the dust and disrupting the gas of the galaxy and that's a very big question and that will help us really understand the evolution of galaxies kind of as a whole fantastic and then if we've got a black hole in our galaxy is there a possibility that could grow and ignite into a quasar our black hole is quite relatively small for a supermassive black hole. I believe it's only a million times the mass of the sun. But for our galaxy, the accretion rate, so the rate that this supermassive black hole, Sagittarius A star, 
is consuming the surrounding material is incredibly low. So it's it's not very bright. It's, it's nowhere near active at the moment. But like I said, it won't just ignite itself. There's just not enough kind of material close by. It would need some kind of event, for example, Andromeda hitting the galaxy or some other event of suddenly a load of gas and dust being funneled into the centre. And we know the easiest way to do that is merging galaxies. So this will at least happen in three billion years. But at the moment, it's, it's a pretty dormant black hole, which I think is probably a good thing for us as living in the in the galaxy. What would you say quasars can tell us about the future of the universe? Interestingly, quasars, because they're the brightest objects in the universe, what most astronomers use quasars for, and I call these people cosmologists, which is slight, slightly different, it's not exactly what I do, is they use quasars as kind of tracers of the distant universe. So quasars are the things you can see the furthest away because they're the brightest things. Anything else is just too far away, it gets too faint and you can't see it. And in astronomy, the further away you look, the further back in time you're looking because of the time light has taken to travel to us. What cosmologists do is they use quasars to kind of probe the distant and the early universe, and then that gives them an idea of how we got from the Big Bang to the universe we saw today. And they also use that information in their kind of massive universe simulations. So in theory, if we know how we got from the Big Bang to what the universe we saw today, we could kind of play this simulation forward and in theory then predict how the universe would end. We already have a couple of theories of this, but that's how quasars can be quite useful as probes of this early universe. It's kind of amazing that quasars can make black holes, which usually consume light, into the brightest, most powerful objects in our known universe, visible across the electromagnetic spectrum. While we might not actually be at risk of being chopped in half by one of those powerful beams of energy coming out of a massive donut, quasars can tell us so much about our galaxy, from its birth to its end. That's all from us today on Why. Thank you to Dr Vicky Fawcett. Thank you very much. We'll be back with more scientific anomalies, conundrums and weird facts soon. Don't forget to follow the podcast so you don't miss an edition. And follow us on social media too. Links are in the show notes. I've been Luke Turner asking... Why? See you next time. Why was written and presented by Luke Turner. The lead producer was Anne-Marie Luff and the audio producer was me, Jade Bailey. The managing editor is Jacob Jarvis and the group editor is Andrew Harrison. Artwork by Jim Parrott and our theme music is by DJ Food. Why is a Podmasters production. Why?